I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Walker here and we are in for our roundtable discussions with Dr. Paul Meyer, Melanie Van and myself. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. (laughs) And Melanie, you too, of course. Thank you guys. So tonight uh, we are going to talk about, we've had, we've done one, well, we've done a, a few shows about this, but um, I want to really dig deeper into what people's views are of success and um, what fear comes up for people, especially people that have had, you know, really serious mental health challenges, maybe uh, trauma from their childhood, a lot of mental health illness or mental illness in their family or whatever. And, you know, what, what ways do they come up and, you know, abut success and then um, retreat? Uh, or, Or what is it that, you know, they do to are able to do to push themselves, you know, to the next level? And really, what is success? because it's it's different in the eye or in the eyes of the beholder. So and also, lastly, how people are treated differently once other people perceive that they have success. So that's a that's a mouthful. Um, and I wanted to do this with you, Paul, especially because, you know, you're Dr. Paul Meyer and you've had a lot of success. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, you've experienced a lot of the pitfalls and the, the great parts of it and so on. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain and, um, and then talk about this for our listening family as well. Well, uh, Kristen, when, when I wrote um, Love is a Choice with um, Robert Hemfeld, and of course that book really took off. We were on Oprah and, and she featured it and it sold over a million copies and it's still selling today. But but uh, he he told me something interesting in a private conversation because uh, we were talking about people who had succeeded and, and their lives were ruined as a result. And uh, and uh, Dr. Hemphill told me he said, Paul, it's really uh, it's really a lot harder um, to grow from success than it is from failure. Or we can learn a lot more from failure than from success. But success is harder to take 
than failure. And, um, and, and I was surprised at first um, that it would be a lot harder to handle success than it is failure. But with failure, we, uh, uh, we regroup, we get support, you know, we, we, we are humbled and, uh, um, and we grow and, and become stronger. With success, success can breed more success, but lots of times um, success, um, especially in, a, in an insecure person in the first place, can breed narcissism. And so, one, you know, there's a lot of things that make success difficult. But one thing is that uh, uh, people who never succeeded and then all of a sudden they succeed um, can become real narcissistic. I think we even see that in politicians last lots of times if they were uh, if they were nobody in high school and somehow they made it to um, the United States, you know, Congress or something. Then a lot of times they have really uh, sociopathic lifestyles that they develop, and then. Uh, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of other things um, that the three of us will get into. But one is that uh, some people have a hard time with success because they were taught in their childhood, if they grew up in an abusive childhood, um, that they were taught by their parents, you'll never succeed, uh, you'll never amount to anything, or no matter what they did, if they did succeed in something. Uh, I know uh, when I was growing up, my I, lo- I loved my dad and he and he loved us, but. He was a strict German immigrant, and, and I remember one time getting all A's except for one B plus, and him saying, "Now, why did you get that B?" You know, and uh, and so sometimes uh, when we get older, we can feel guilty for succeeding, like like we're beating a parent, you know, and the parent wanted us not to beat them and success. Right. Does that make sense? You know, so there's Absolutely. a lot of different reasons why it's mm-hmm. difficult. What do you think, Come Melanie? You guys' minds. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Melanie, when, you know, you've worked with people on this? And for I think, too. yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think, I think it can be a lot of things, you know, we're also complex. So our reactions to quote success or failure can be different, but I, I know one thing that I have dealt with, with several different clients actually, um, and two clients in particular that I'm thinking of that were also had eating disorders the the excitement or feelings of success are so close to trauma Um, and those things can get mixed up in your brain sometimes so uh, you know if say you have ptsd and excitement feels uncontrollable or it feels uncomfortably close to some type of arousal or trauma that you may have felt in the past so Learning how to differentiate feelings, I think, is really important because I think a lot of times people that have trauma in their past have this fear of success. And sometimes it's because they're just uncomfortable with feelings in general um, or any type of excitement inducing feeling because it it somehow resonates with trauma in their brain. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is what Paul mentioned, and that is, you know, maybe being verbally abused somehow or, you know, things that are said to you by a parent or a caregiver that eventually become your script of in your brain and and somehow you feel that you don't deserve success. And so you, or you may just associate success with 
competition, with expectation, with loss. I know that's a lot of times where minds come come from. I'm kind of afraid to be happy because I've lost so many things. And it seemed like every time things would settle down in my life and I was happy, it would be ripped out from under me. So it's like, what's the purpose of even getting exciting and having hope when things always seem to fall apart? So then you just kind of live in the safe land. Um, and I and I think those are kind of feelings that you have to learn how to how to work past too. So, but I think a big one that people don't realize is that, you know, differentiating between feelings of excitement and anticipation and trauma, because someone that's had a lot of trauma in their past, those two feelings can feel very similar and it can feel out of control. And so you just stay where you're comfortable. Lastly, success is fear of the unknown. Failure kind of feels familiar, I'm sure, because it's safe. <laughs> you know, you're not going anywhere. And when you're successful, you don't really yeah. know what's coming. It's it's a fear of the unknown. It's not knowing. Uh, and some people would really just kind of choose to stay in complacency to step out and take some risk and and not know what's coming next. So those are my initial thoughts. Mm. Well, I think... Um... I mean, I resonated with with all of that. Uh, one of the things that I, I mean, I I have definitely been tested in many different ways around this. Um, I think it's great to be a humble person, but I also think that you can uh, you can be not too hum- like no one can be too humble, but you can sort of use that as a a barrier to stepping into accepting success almost like we're supposed to feel guilty for having success or that you will be perceived as being egotistical if you are successful so there's i definitely struggle you know with that and i've been through like up and downs with this many many times i've had people come in my life that um my god they were so uh complimentary that that almost gave me a cavity and I'm sure it was difficult for people to be around me and that person. I know it was for Melanie. It was making her sick to her stomach a few times. Some of the people that were coming in just telling me I was, you know, all this great stuff. And I took responsibility for that. Like, okay, well that happened. I was there. So yes, they behaved that way, but somewhere I guess my ego needed that or something because I'm a participant in my life and I'm glad that I don't need that anymore because I don't have that happen. However, I do have people that have this perception that they've made in their head of, of what they think my success is and then they treat me, it takes me a while to get them to just like be themselves with (laughs) with me so there's that and then the other piece of it is um i get people that want me to introduce them to someone want me to spend money on them are trying to fool me in some way to get me to you know those kind of things that happen so it's an interesting kind of a um i won't say minefield but it's it's felt like that before but it's it's a interesting dynamic looking at it from you know from those perspectives too so what do you think about yeah. that paul what, what what you just said reminds me of i've seen quite a few i live here in dallas and i've done some of the bible studies for the cowboys and stuff you know and and uh, and i've counseled uh, quite a few pro athletes and uh, 
Um, and that happens to them. What, what you just said were, uh, you know, here they, they often come from poverty and, uh, um, and, you know, the ghettos and things. And, and then all of a sudden they're making, uh, you know, 10 million a year, or, you know, I think the average salary in the NFL is like 2 million a year or something like that. Or the, you know, they make a lot in other words. And all of a sudden, uh, they said all their, when they have a little success, all their relatives and friends and ex-friends and ex, you know, everybody's, uh, clamming on their door, claiming to be their best friend, wanting to mooch off and then get money and get stuff. And, and they have a hard time saying no. And, uh, and then, uh, a lot of them all of a sudden feel the sudden success. And, uh, what most, uh, uh, pro football players tend to do, this is what they've told me is, uh, most of them, you know, most of them only play about four or five years, something like that. And, uh, if they make, uh, 5 million a year, they spend 5 million a year. And, uh, most, most of them, when they finish playing are, are broke. And, um, you know, they've bought these huge houses that they can no longer afford to pay for and things. And, uh, they've spent their, you know, million, million or two on jewels and, and gold chains and stuff that are hanging around their necks. Right. And, uh, yeah, but they, and so they've, uh, they've, the new rich, the nouveau riche. I forgot how, what the French word is, but people that were poor that be, all of a sudden become rich are uh, can tend to be uh, gaudy and spend a lot of money on things, you know, and, and uh, two hundred thousand dollar cars and all that stuff, and and treat everybody uh, to everything, and and then and then it's gone. Um, so that a lot of them uh, lose their money because they spend it all, and then other ones uh, feel bad because there's people always asking for it and. And, um, uh, so that's a real struggle. Um, people who grow up with, with wealth and continue to have wealth, uh, usually lots of times just drive a regular car and, uh, and they look, they, you know, they, they try to dress down lots of times. They'll try to dress like they're, uh, poor almost, you know, cause they don't want to be known for their wealth lots of times. And, uh, so that, that you know, that's one thing is that becoming uh, real successful in the world's eyes uh, all of a sudden can uh, result in those kinds of pitfalls. And then, and then, you know, like you said at the beginning, Kristen, what is success? And uh, I think, you know, true success is loving and being loved. Um, but most people don't see it that way. And, um, yeah. uh, and so they, they think people think success comes from money or power or, Sex, power, and money are the big three. And uh, so like uh, the, a newspaper writer, I think I mentioned this before, a newspaper uh, um, writer interviewed uh, Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, when he was the richest man on earth. And and, uh, and she asked him, how much money will it take before you feel successful enough? And he scratched his chin and said, that's a good question, young lady. And he said, it'll take just a little bit more. You know, in, in other words, it'll take a little bit more than I'll ever have. So it never works. It never works. And uh, so uh, if, if if you base your success on your uh, income, it'll never be quite enough. And if you base it on your uh, athletic prowess, then it might be okay for a little while, but it won't last long. And so, you know, we really need to base our success on how much we are able to love and be loved. 
Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I wanted to say this before, um, before I go to you, Melanie, because I think this is how this is, this reminds me so much of how you are. Um, one of the things that I uh, have noticed with this sort of next level of what's going on with our network and stuff, which is all great, because the reality is, it's the same thing with what you, you know, want for Meyer clinics. Paul, it's to help as many people as possible. I mean, that that's the point. Um, and right. so I'm in that same place. So it isn't about me. It's about this other thing that I'm so passionate about wanting to keep going forward. And um, I was just, I don't know, for whatever reason, there was some trauma coming up from uh, something that happened last year around this time. And I was really beating myself up for sleeping more and, uh, and going, what's wrong with me? And then I talked about it with my counselor and, and she said, well, this is event trauma. Like this is the same date that of this thing that happened last year. And so of course you need more sleep. And, it made me really stop and think, boy, have, have I really been a compassionate person? Have I really been that? With all the volunteer work I've done forever, my whole life, uh, all the stuff I've done, you know, quote unquote, for other people, have I really been a compassionate person? And, and the reason why I asked that question was because I felt in the last two weeks how little compassion I actually have ever had for myself. And then I, and then I realized who, okay. Okay. And I, and some light came in and I felt this compassion for myself and it felt wonderful. And then things started happening uh, with success, almost like my lack of compassion for myself was holding it on the other side of a door uh, that I was holding closed. And um, and what I but the but and that's great, but that wasn't the important thing at all. So it shows you like what what really is success. It isn't this great stuff going on, although all that's great. What it is is oh my gosh, now, because I have a sliver, obviously this is a journey, right? I have a sliver of what it's like to really feel compassionately towards myself um, and to treat myself with compassion, which means now I can actually have compassion for others. Does that make sense? Yeah, you gotta fill your own love tank before you uh, have anything to pour out onto other people. And we say that, we say that, and people don't really real, I I could say that too, and I really didn't know what that, I really did not know what that felt like. I could intellectualize that, but I didn't know what that felt like, Paul. We encourage everybody listening right now and and the listening family to uh, make a choice today and even write it down in the back of your journal or somewhere. Uh, put today's date down and and uh, make a pledge to yourself that you're going to be your own best friend and uh, you're not going to say anything uh, negative to yourself that you wouldn't tell your best friend under the same circumstances and um, that it doesn't mean you go around having a 24-hour day pity party you know uh, but 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 you do have to have compassion and you do have to love yourself in order to have love to others 
even Jesus uh, said that the great commandment is to love God and to love uh, others as you love yourself. And, and uh, you have to have a healthy kind of self-love and, and including compassion for yourself when you're going through uh, trials and tribulations. Uh, other people are abusing you or taking advantage of you stuff. I think, I think it's good to have some compassion on yourself and to even feel sorry for yourself, you know, in, in a way, not in a productive way we can uh, do something about it. Right. Exactly. What do you think about that, Melanie? Well, <laughs> I think it's important that you give yourself the time for your mind and your heart to connect. That is to me, one of the main goals of psychotherapy <laughs> is getting past intellectualizing, especially for those of us that are incredibly intelligent, like you are, Kristen. That's where we automatically go. So it's very easy, easy for us to stay in our heads, but not really take the time or know what it means to actually feel it. And to actually feel it includes vulnerability. And that's a really scary feeling for a lot of us that have been through a lot of trauma. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because these are all the things that kind of feed into, I think, uh, a quote, fear of success of, of any sorts. And then too, you know, I, I do, I think success means something different for everyone. So what, what is it, you know, is it income level? Is it how much extra time do you have in your calendar? Is it how you perceive yourself? Is it how, you know, you you spend time with your family, etc. So it can mean it, it, it can mean something different for everyone. Um, and so no one can really ex explain what success is except for you. And I think that's where you have to start is understanding, you know, what is it? What does it mean for you to be, quote, be successful in your life? What is what does that really mean to you? And once you can really understand that, I think sometimes that can clear the way for a lot of your fears of success. The other thing that brings to mind is I think fear of success is very different for women. And that is what comes to mind when mm. I think about this. <laughs> I think get into that. <laughs> I think it's very different. No, I think it's different. Because, why would it be? Well, Kristen, why do you think? Why do you think well, it's different? <laughs> it's well, let's, men. let's go into well, men <laughs> have are used to over the millennia sitting at the table of success, leading yes. uh, all they're oh. they're comfortable there because yeah. it's just historical historically, thousands, yeah. Thousands of years of uh, male chauvinism, right? <laughs> well, no, just training, just training on how to be on how to lead and how to be successful and women have not, you know, had that. Uh, we've, we just haven't, I mean, obviously we haven't. So we're much better than we used to be when I was consulting and most of my, well, gosh, I think I had two clients that were female business owners. Everybody else was a male and I worked with over a thousand clients as a consultant and these were huge companies and small companies. But, you know, this was this was uh, I'm 48. So this was the time then. But the women that I worked with were very petty and 
clawing and backstabbing and all this stuff. And I, I would be like, why are you doing that? Like, we're never going to be taken seriously if you're, if you behave like that. And I, I, you know, talked about it with different people and it was, well, we're just not comfortable being there. I don't think we have that um, as even, you know, near like what we used to. There's way more women that are comfortable in leadership positions and so on. And we're evolving, thank goodness, into comfortable places. But it's still, uh, there's still a lot of work to get, work to do in that area. And really our voices really haven't been, um, haven't been heard in many ways. I mean, is that kind of where you thought I was going to go, Melanie, or were you thinking of something? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I mean, you know, I, I think about it. I'm like, you know, it isn't, I don't really call it male chauvinism, Paul, because I think in a lot of ways, success is an expectation. Monetary success is an expectation put on men. That's not always put on women. Right. And so there's an expectation of men to, get up and go to work, to look good in their suits, to be fit to this, that, and the other. So I think it's like an expectation to be a provider, which is biblical, I, I guess you could say. But I think, you know, it's just this expectation of men that I think can be really difficult for a lot of guys sometimes. I think it's really hard for guys to find their success when they don't fit into, you know, the quintessential successful male. I think for women, a lot of times, if you do have all those things that you're expected to have, if you have your stuff together, if you're organized, if you're fit, if you've been to school, if you do this, if you do that, then you're then you're looked down upon because people don't believe that women can do all those things and be successful at all those mm -hmm. things. And you might even be called something ugly if you're really successful in a woman. Right, Kristen? Yeah, that's right? true. Rem Fair. Remember the story you've told about um, working at the the dentist office, I guess it was. Yeah, I emailed you about that, Paul. The minute I gained weight, man, I was everybody's best friend. But before that, when I was thin and wore my little suits, and uh, you know, I none no none of the women, especially, wanted me anywhere near their offices. So yeah, I felt mm -hmm. I felt yeah. like. Um, I mean, to me, it was like, well, great. I'm, I like to eat. I'll carry this extra 30 pounds around and I'll be the, you know, and I was the most favored consultant, always chosen to the chagrin of the male owners who the, the bigger I got, uh, head weight wise, the less in my, in those business meetings at corporate office, I, it was like I was just ignored. I mean, they literally just completely, the larger I got, the more I was ignored, but I was the favored consultant out with their clients. It was so weird. You know, I looked at it like a sociological study, but that that is what happened. It just was. Yeah, it's you know, definitely. Melanie, Melanie yeah. you mentioned something about, about uh, the biblical, something about something being biblical. Yeah. And, uh, I want to I want to say something uh, good in there. Proverbs uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs uh, three thousand years ago, and in Proverbs thirty one he describes the ideal woman, and the ideal woman buys and sells fields. You know that's that was one of the things she did. She she went out and bought fields and sold them, and and uh, and uh, she uh, made really she dressed in super fine scarlet and and dressed nice and. And uh, and uh, so a lot of people would think, oh, well, I didn't know that. I thought to be, uh, you know, humble, 
a religious person, you need to <laughs> you need to not be pious work and, and things poor. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm liking this yeah. Solomon guy. I'm going to read more about that. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah and he hmm. talked a lot about success too in Ecclesiastes, uh, which I just I just read through that. I started I started to write a book on it and got lost in about the halfway through the first chapter and then never finished it. So, but, um, he talked about how, uh, he pursued success. You know, that the main, the three main ways that people look for success, I think, uh, are sex, power, and money. And, uh, he, he looked for success sexually. He had a thousand wives and concubines and he said he did not withhold from himself any pleasure. So that means, you know, he, he went at it, you know, and, uh, and he says, and after a while, it was meaningless. It, it was meaningless to him. Right. It, it didn't make him feel successful. And then, and then he had he became the most powerful ruler on the, on the, on planet Earth. And he said that felt empty. I still felt empty, and it didn't make me feel successful. And then uh, he became the wealthiest man on planet Earth, and even had silver nuggets laying out in his yard and things like that. And and uh, and he says, you know, that that did not bring me. Uh, pleasure in the end it did not make me feel successful and then he finally concluded that uh, what we talked about earlier that loving and being loved and reaching out to help your fellow man and 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 uh, serving God he said that's that's what true success is I know I know no one likes commercials but seriously folks without the help from these organizations we could not stay on the air please give a shout out to zencharts.com if you're a mental health or addiction treatment center you'll want to use their ehr it's gorgeous and they're just good people and also my genetics m-y-g-e-n-e-t-x.com because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment and lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Yeah, I tell you, my my power being out because of the hurricane we went through and uh, spending time with horses, not always being on my computer, uh, having this kind of awakening about compassion towards myself. I was like, huh. Um, I, I, I could give well, Melanie will laugh because I said this to her. I happily will get a piece of land, put uh, my horse on it, of course, I'd have to have another horse since they are pack animals, but put, you know, half horses and live in a yurt. And that feels like <laughs> mucho success to me. I mean, really, like I don't that that would feel if I could feel as good as I felt when I had that awareness come in and, and start this feeling of actually having compassion for myself. Um, I want that. Like to me, that is success. I want to live there. I don't want that to be a little place where I vacation. I want that to be my home. And I feel like I, you know, uh, that feels phenomenal to me. Any other stuff that happens outside of that is great, wonderful, you know, whatever. But but to keep going towards that light, that that feels like success to me. Yeah, well, I think your success can change in different, you know, different areas of your life. I mean, gosh, 
success sometimes is just getting out of bed and taking a shower. Um, <laughs> if you really want to try to try to bring yeah, it out, you're depressed. But, heck yeah. Right. So, uh, so, I mean, I think it, it, it does, it, it definitely shifts. I mean, you know, Kristen, you know me and, and you know how much I, I love my kids and my animals and, but there was a huge part of my life where I had no intentions of getting married. I had no interest in having a family or having children. And, you know, I was in school. I loved it. I loved being an A student. Um, I mean, those things really matter to me. And, it, and I was very proud. Um, and I loved it. I just love knowledge. And then then my life changed. And I mean, literally, you know, when when a lot of mothers have babies, so many things change. Some some moms, a lot doesn't change and they end up going back to work. And that's fine, too. So there's been this phase of my life where you know, raising, raising a child has been um, my main goal and where I felt success. And I'm such a relational person that that's a lot of times how I define success is in my relationships. Um, and if my relationship with myself is good, if my relationship with my animals and my kids are good, then, then life is good. Like I can handle stress at work, it, it's not going to unfaze me. But if my relationships aren't well, uh, then I'm stressed out. But a lot of people aren't like that. They're completely opposite. So if work is stressing them out, their entire life is going to be stressed out. So I just think people's, you know, uh, need for success and drive changes a lot over your your lifetime and over your lifeline. And that's another thing I feel like that feeds into things being different uh, for, for women than, than for men, because, you know, we have the pleasure of childbearing and, and a lot of times being the primary child raiser. Um, so thing, things are just different. Expectations are different, I think, and that can work against males and, and females. But so, yeah, I mean, right now, Kristen, yeah, living in a yurt and a tent with your horses is success. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I mean, people I'll keep doing people what I'm doing. Well, people, you know, they'll hear that and they'll think you're crazy. But I have totally, you know, I have been there. I'm just like, if I could just live in, I mean, I didn't even want a tent or a yurt, Kristen. I was like, can I just grow some fur or something and, and just just become a horse? I'd be a lot happier. Um, but I moved <laughs> past that time in my life. So um, and now I just, you know, want, want a pasture where I can keep them. But I think it, I think success needs to be flexible. What do you, what do you think, Paul? I think it, I think it needs to be transient with your life. I think it grows as we grow. And yeah. I know, uh, I know in my own life, um, I grew up sort of on, uh, you know, lower middle class and, and, uh, and, um, and I remember thinking, uh, and I really felt like, you know, like God was calling me to be a doctor and, and uh, and I and I do feel like he did. And and but when I became one, when I walked across the stage and got my MD degree, I felt instead of feeling really happy about it, I felt uh, sad. And I thought, well, you know, I'm it's I'm still me. And so it didn't really change anything. And then and then um, when I uh, finished my training and and uh, went into psychiatry, um, I, I sacrificed finances in order to teach at a seminary and and so I thought well you know that's that's good that I was able to do that and then but then the books took off and sold and, and I ended up making 
you know, selling 8 million copies of my books, you know, and, and so when I started getting money flowing in, I, I got real prideful and, uh, and I got real money conscious. I, I, I was distracted from my mission was to help as many people as possible throughout my life. But, but when I made a lot of money, all of a sudden I, I got distracted and, and I ended up buying uh, condos in Colorado and went in Padre Island and, and, you know, office building in Austin and doing this and that, the other thing. Not that there's anything wrong with investing, but I became too occupied with money. And then uh, a guy uh, ripped me off and, and then the laws changed on real estate and things. So in the ladies, in the 80s, I, I lost $8 million in, in just a matter of a few years and, and, uh, and basically went, went broken. But in hindsight, that was a good experience for me to refocus, uh, refocus my life. And then when I went on, uh, I went on a lot of trips to other countries to, to help train uh, counselors and pastors and, and uh, lay people into counseling and things like that. And uh, I'd have a, I remember there were two, we talked about dreams, you know, I'm going to tell you about two of my dreams real quick. I, I went to Cuba, um, illegally actually. Uh, Cuba gave me permission, but Americans weren't supposed to go there, but I went anyway <laughs> and uh, took a chance, you know. And, uh, but I, I went there and uh, was able to do, you know, I, I got to speak to a thousand doctors about Christian psychiatry and things like that. I mean, doors opened up that were just, uh, unbelievable. And, uh, and then at the end of the, I know with other MDs at the end of the trip, I was really proud of myself. And, and I remember, uh, the night before we left, uh, laying in bed at night and, and uh, and thinking and saying to God in my prayer, I said, you know, God, you're really lucky to have me a Christian psychiatrist, <laughs> you know, could get this and I can do this and I can do that. And I can do it. You know what I mean? And I went to bed, uh, feeling really proud of myself. And then I had, I had a dream where all my sins were flashing before my eyes from, uh, from, you know, from childhood on, you know, one after another. And I woke up just crying and weeping and, and thinking, uh, God, you know, really, I'm so lucky that you used me. I don't deserve to be used, uh, uh, like this, um, you know, in a prideful way. And, uh, and I really felt like, uh, God was saying, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I kept thinking in that verse, then I felt totally at peace with it. Like it's, it's okay to succeed, but don't get too proud of yourself for, for succeeding. And, and the next day, a missionary, uh, I mean, a, a, yeah, a missionary doctor from another country led the devotions and, and uh, he said he was going to share a different verse, but he had a dream about a, the, the verse he's going to share. And he shared my strength is made perfect in weakness. The Ooh, same one that, that God showed chills. me the night before. Hmm. Yeah. And then, Ooh. and then, and so I thought I learned my lesson. Then two years later, I was, the same thing happened in Russia. I went to Russia uh, when Yeltsin took over. Uh, there was an opening for uh, people to come in and and uh, and teach Christian psychiatry and things like that. And so I taught in Moscow and I taught in St. Petersburg for a whole week and had wonderful successes. And I went to Red Square and and I had a coke in my hand and I was toasting the soldiers. You know, said Yeltsin, Yeltsin, Yeltsin. I was you know glad that he took over and. Uh, um, and I had a lot of really, you know, good successes there and just miraculous things happened that I won't, you know, we don't have time to go into. And, and so the, the night before we left, the same thing happened. I was, I started, I forgot what happened in Cuba two years earlier. And I, and I started praying, uh, 
God, boy, you're so lucky to have me. Look at what I was able to accomplish this week. You know, it, not realizing again that again it was him using me. And and uh, let's see, the the verse in Cuba was was what my God uses the my strength is made perfect in weakness, right? In Cuba, that's the one. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which was which. And uh, and then in, in this time I had a dream again and saw my sins flashing, but now it had the new ones added between uh, Cuba and. In Russia, they in that two years, and uh, and I woke up again weeping and and thinking, uh, uh, you know, I I'm sorry, Lord, that I got so prideful about it, and uh, and and I really felt the that God was telling me that He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and uh, and and I'm foolish in a lot of ways. Uh, if, if the better you know me, the more foolish you'll see that I am. And, uh, and, and, uh, but, but it wasn't to put me down. It, I felt comforted. I felt, I, I, I fell asleep feeling totally at peace. And, uh, and the next day, the same thing happened. Somebody else, uh, led the devotion, the final devote, breakfast devotion. And, uh, he said the same thing. I, I hadn't told anybody in Cuba or in Russia that I had the dreams. And a guy, uh, changed his mind about what verse to share. And, um, uh, because of a dream he had and he shared, uh, that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Wow. And so it, it reconfirmed to me that, mm. that this was real. It wasn't just a coincidence, you know, and uh, so I, I, I got to remind myself, sometimes I get real prideful in my accomplishments. And, uh, and then there's other times when I'll be real successful at something. And then I feel sad because I feel guilty. Like I don't deserve it. You know, that, it, it surprised me. Sometimes after my greatest successes, I'll start feeling depressed and I'll stop and say, well, why am I depressed? And, and I think there's times that I feel guilty for succeeding and I'm not sure why. Mm, yeah. I thought I'm in this counselor seat, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Kristen. And then I just remembered, I remembered something no, from, you my, go ahead. from no. my studies. No, go ahead, Kristen. I, I was just going to say, I definitely struggled with imposter syndrome. Yeah. Uh, they're really going to find out that I don't really know what I'm talking about and that I am not as good as whatever, or that I did something that I'm my biggest thing. And this one still can get me. I don't, the imposter thing doesn't really happen very often anymore. And that I think is just me having more self-confidence and, and whatever, but, but I do struggle with this one that I'm, I'm working on that I'm gonna, that I'm out there doing something utterly ridiculous. Like I'm being an absolute fool and no one is telling me what a fool I'm being. And I, <laughs> I just tied this to when I was a kid. Ooh, see, yeah. we have moments even when we're doing <laughs> the show. It was this very, very quickly. So we were uh, driving home. I was probably four or five years old and all the kids in the neighborhood, which seemed like 500 kids and it was probably like two. Okay. <laughs> uh, but they were standing in front of my house and I was excited to see my friends because um, I didn't go to public school. I always went to private school. So I always had these long drives home and I didn't really hang out with the neighborhood kids often ever for a lot of reasons. But um, anyway, I got out of the car and I ran to my friends and they, they purposely had stood there in front of the house so that when I got out of the car to run and see them, that they would all ignore me and pretend like they couldn't see me. 
and they all ran off. <laughs> and, of and they did that to tease you? Yeah, they did it to tease me. And it made me, of course, cry. And I was really upset. And I went to my mother, who is the worst person to go to about anything like this whatsoever, because her self-esteem is she doesn't even have any, which is, which is a whole other show. But the fact that I have some <laughs> is a testament to prayer. But um, the first thing she said was, well, maybe if you weren't so mean and bossy, your friends would, you'd, you'd actually have some friends. And I, I wasn't a mean and bossy kid. So I always think when I, that somehow people are just not telling me that I really am a fool, a jerk, not very smart, don't know what I'm doing. And then they're going to, and then at some point they're going to, you know, tell me and be like, well, we just didn't want to say anything, Kristen. That one I, I definitely struggle with still. Yeah, that's definitely like a, uh, it would be good for some cognitive behavioral therapy, don't you think, Paul, to <laughs> get yeah. rid of the, that false thinking? But I think a couple of things have, have come to mind. And number one is, and we could probably do a whole other show on this, and I, I'm thinking about my my son in particular, my 17-year-old, is mental illness and a lack of self-trust. And I remember experiencing this the first time I had a major depressive episode because I'd always been a very successful student, sports, et cetera, et cetera. And when I started having depression and anxiety, I couldn't trust myself anymore. And I saw the exact same thing happen to my 17 year old who went from being an extremely outgoing, confident, borderline cocky. Uh, kid that everyone, you know, all, all adults love to being someone that just doubted the very little things that he could do. He started having horrible panic attacks and he just started to question himself. So I think people that have mental illness and mental health problems often develop a sense of a lack of self-trust, which can be huge when it comes to fear of success. And working past that, I think, is more difficult for people that have mental illness. The second thing, Paul, that I remembered is, do you remember, I think, the Jonah complex? Like Abraham Maslow came up with the Jonah complex. And it was I really remember. about it was about Jonah. And he because, you know, Jonah was trying to evade the decree of God, basically. In other words, you know, fearing yeah. success comes down to avoiding your destiny. Yeah, free so, ran away. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, you know, was, there's actually something called the Jonah complex at Maslow. I remember that in my training. Um, you know, kind of uh, avoiding your destiny is is called the the Jonah complex. So, and sometimes, I mean, shucks, avoiding your destiny sometimes can just come down to very simple. We're human beings. We don't like to do hard work. You know, being successful takes mm -hmm. a lot of effort. It takes <laughs> a lot of hard True. work. It takes honing your skill. It takes yeah. all those things. So sometimes, quote, the fear of success for some people, I think, is just they're not really sure if they really want to put the work in or not. Because it's once you make the commitment, then it means you're going to have to do a lot of hard work uh, and they'll have there'll be sacrifices that that will have to be made. So sometimes I think it's that's a lot of what holds some people back, too. So I just yeah. think it's once I. Once, once I felt like God wanted me to be a psychiatrist, I, I felt like I couldn't just be a psychiatrist. I had to be a really good one, you know, and I ended up mm -hmm. getting 
five degrees and doing all that stuff and yep. including a seminary degree and, and 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 I worked real hard to be a good one and uh, um and it, it is hard work if I had to do it over again I I mean you know if, I mean if I had to do it now at my age there's no way I could uh, I could do it um, what one other thing that came to mind is that some people have a failure script yeah. and fear of success because it would please their parents and uh yes like, I, oh my gosh i, I know point. a guy <laughs> i know a guy whose parent his dad really wanted him to succeed financially and he just drilled it into him growing up he wanted him to succeed financially and uh and he wanted him to get an mba he had to get an mba and which is a good road to success financially and uh, and he went all the way through mba school he didn't like even like this this, this guy and i mean this is a a friend of mine, somebody I know, and uh, and he didn't even like business, but he majored in it and went to the colleges dad wanted him to go to, even though he didn't want to go there, and went all the way through MBA school, even though he didn't want to do that to please his father, and all he needed to do to to graduate was complete. Uh, he had an incomplete in one course because he didn't finish a five-page paper, and all he had to do was finish that five-page paper, and he would have got his mm -hmm. MBA. And and he didn't do it, and so he didn't graduate with his peers, and they gave him a five-year extension. They said if you turn in that paper within the next five years, you'll still get your MBA. Five and, years. And, oh my gosh. And he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until the date passed, and he never got his MBA. And he would have got like a thirty thousand a year pay raise if he would have done that five-page paper. All he had to do is write one, turn it in, get a C on. And, and uh, because in, in, in when I found out about that and, and we talked about it, I, he, you know, we, we figured out that uh, he hated so much that he had to devote his life to something he didn't want to do to please his father that he just couldn't stand to finish it. He had to punish his father by not getting his MBA. And, and, and my advice was, well, you know, you've come this far. You might as well get your, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you know, it would have been better to go ahead and get your MBA. And uh, and then uh, uh, find ways to uh, to change your career goals, you know, into things that you really enjoy. But uh, he failed. Uh, he had a failure script in order to get even with his dad, and, and that happens to a lot of uh, if if your if parents uh, were athletic, real athletic, they push their they can push their kids into being a you know an Olympic athlete in a certain field, and they end up you know, get, getting depressed and things. And Richard Nixon comes to mind that uh, he came from a real, real strict religious background and, uh, and uh, they pressured him to succeed uh, an awful lot when he was growing up. And uh, he, he graduated like number two from Duke law school and, and uh, he became president. And if you, if he would have just uh, deleted his uh, eight minutes worth of tapes, he would have made it, you know, without uh, getting, uh, <laughs> without losing his whole presidency. But I think he had a failure script. I think he wanted to get caught. I think he broke that. He broke that mm -hmm. rule, and and mm -hmm. I think he wanted to get caught unconsciously to um, to get even with his parents because he succeeded as far as you can get, and then failed. Ooh! Wow, that's interesting. That's, that's a big lesson. You know what a big takeaway for this with me is listening family and I'm saying this to me too 
please don't compare yourself to other people. Yeah. Don't Mm -hmm. compare. Don't look at Oprah or some football player or some professor or whoever. Don't look at them and compare yourself uh, and to them and compare what, you know, say what your success is supposed to look like in a comparison to, uh, to those people, because that, that's a recipe for, you know, just a lot of, a lot of issues. And I will say yeah. a, a failure script with me, my biological father was a, I don't know if he was a genius. What is it called when you're a kid and you're, you're like a child wonder? Prodigy. 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 I don't know if he was a prodigy. I don't know, but I know that he could play. He played the piano like uh, any song, didn't need sheet music, just play the ukulele. He could play the violin. He could play the guitar. He could play uh, the drums. I mean, every instrument possible. He could play like it was, it was just insane. And he tried to give me piano lessons and he was like your dad, uh, Paul, where, you know, I got all A's and one B and it was, why did you get that B, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then he did, you know, he was abusive in the ways that your father absolutely was not because your father was a good father, but um, he tried to give me piano lessons and he was horrible and I just shut down and and didn't do it. I have no idea if I have any musical talent whatsoever. I know that if I sing, birds die from the sky. So obviously, <laughs> I'm not going to be singing, but I might have some ability, right? But I have never gone near anything musical for one reason. And it's kind of a up yours to my dad. And I yeah. just thought the other day, you know what? I don't want to go play in clubs and stuff, but I, I'm not going to play piano. I, I'm, I can't go there, but I am going to take guitar lessons and I'm going to learn how to play guitar just for me. I want to use just a different for you. brain. Not for I him, wanna, just for you. Exactly. Yeah. Just, just for me. I'm not going to let that script keep me from, cause you never know those weird, seemingly strange, innocuous things that don't bring you what seems like more money or more this or more that, but you do them just for yourself, those things enrich you in ways and all the ways in your life that you, you have no idea until you do them. So I'm, I'm actually going to do that. And I'm like, well, good. You know, it's 48. Yeah, I'm 48. It's about time you get rid of that script. (laughs) Yeah. Those are hard to get rid of those failure scripts, you know, something else. And I know we're wrapping up, but I I came across, I was digging through some paperwork the other day, trying to find something. And I came across my college transcripts and I, I, I just had to laugh out loud because I, I looked at them and I was very much in the middle of eating disorder in my undergraduate college studies. And I was such a perfectionist. I mean, perfectionism was ruling my life. And it so played out on my college transcripts because this is exactly how the transcript went. Every single class was an A or even an A plus. And there were two classes that I could not do perfect in because they were hard for me. I didn't do them. I got an incomplete in one and I failed the other one because I couldn't do it perfectly. I wouldn't do it at all. Yeah. 
And I mean, it oh, was. Oh, you are obsessive compulsive. Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. it was horrible. I was so. I mean, it was just so representative of where I was in my life, and it was. It really saddened me because I was like, wow, you know, I could have graduated like magna cum laude, you know, this, that, and I still graduated with honors, but I could have had even higher honors if I just could have gotten over my perfectionism. I've since yeah. gotten gotten past that. I didn't know that. that OCD. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah she was, is. She hides it, it really well, Paul, horrible. but I'm telling you right people, now. People I, are, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, are, it's bad. People that are real, really real, real perfectionistic, uh, yeah, yes. they, they, uh, they they go to a restaurant. It takes them forever to order because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. And uh, if they write a paper, they write the first page over and over again. And because uh, they can't get it right, I wrote a book with a pro golfer. I wrote a book with a pro golfer who was real obsessive compulsive, and and uh, we decided we were just going to write. Uh, you know, and we did write one, but uh, an easy book where we each write a hundred pages. So I wrote my hundred pages in a weekend. And uh, and then and it took him about four years, five years, to drag on and on, because he kept rewriting the same pages over and over again. Right. And I finally told mm. him, I said, I'm going to send this to the publisher and let them edit it. And so I just took his stuff and sent it in, and, and they published it. Or else we would have never got it done, because he was afraid uh, of doing that. And uh, uh, biologically, really, really quick, that we, I mentioned this before, we eat tryptophan in our diet. And, uh, and it goes to our brain. The brain turns it into serotonin. And serotonin gives us love, joy, and peace, and all those good things. And then we have reuptake sites that suck up the serotonin to keep it in balance. And if you inherit reuptake sites that suck up too much, then it's like putting uh, dog poop on your glasses. And, and when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see imperfection. And when you look at your term paper, you see imperfection. And and, uh, and everything in life just seems a little bit more... Uh, 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 like like dog poopy, you know. <laughs> right. And, uh, and and so uh, some of that can be genetic. That perfectionism, you know, where where you have to things have to be either perfect or not at all. And, oh. and that's for for people listening right now. If if you get on a serotonin medicine, you know, any antidepressant, serotonin medicine, and it makes that go away. And uh, and and then you then you can you can succeed. And not have to be perfect. It makes that perfectionism go away. I know uh, we've done shows on this, but let's let's yeah. let's talk about that one again. On what? On, but we what we didn't do is, and uh, we didn't talk about what it's like to be raised and the ramifications of being raised by perfectionists. Yeah, because that's not genetic at all. That doesn't involve biochemistry. It just involves our yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think All mine right. is flat out genetics. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that the Paul, the last two years of my undergraduate college career, I, I didn't, I was dropped off my parents' insurance just for logistics. You know, I guess they can only insure you past a certain age and I did not yeah. have insurance and I, I didn't want to pay for it through school. And I, and I wasn't taking my medication those last two years. And I immediately fell into you know, eating disorder and obviously very obsessive compulsive perfectionistic behavior. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I started my graduate degree, though, there was really great. I was went to Regent University and they had really great rates for some for so for insurance. And I got back on my medicine. And it just made a huge difference. So definitely genetics yeah. with me. 
Yeah, I, I don't want to mislead people that, you know, uh, most people that are perfectionists are that way because of the way they were brought up and yeah. things like that. You know, like 15 of the first 16 astronauts were, were firstborn sons. That's not a yep. coincidence. Yes, so I agree. That's a lot more of the first kid, you know. But, yeah. then, but some of the time, maybe 20% of the time, it's, it can be genetic. Yeah. 80% yep. of the time, it's not. Yes. I know, unfortunately, fortunately, I got a lot of uh, good upbringing that have helped me overcome <laughs> some of those genetic issues. You know, my parents were supportive. So, so funny how it all plays in together. But anyway, well, I think this ended up, see, Paul, we had a whole show yeah. about, about yeah. it. I told it's you. Expensive. And then we, yes, and we even it's, came up with complex, more topics. Isn't it? Yes, it is extremely it's really complex. complex. I think I think it is. We're we're complex individuals, so I guess that's a word for our listening family before we before we uh, we get off the air. Is that we we are all so different. So even though you listen to our stories, you know one of our stories could have happened to you, and you would have responded completely differently. So always keep that in mind when you're listening. Is that every everyone is so complex, and our bodies are complex, and the way God made us are are complex, and I guess that just, you know, speaks to the importance of of keeping that close relationship with him. And that's something we didn't talk about, Paul. I thought about that and I was like, man, I talked about relationship with others and myself, but I didn't really talk about my relationship with God. And that's something that I definitely count as part of my success is where my relationship with him is. Exactly. Most important thing to me. Yes, exactly. Very most important thing. Yeah. And, yes. and getting to know the the real God, I I wrote a book called Experiencing God Outside the Box because you know everybody's taught to look at God a certain way and and we really get them misconstrued I think based on what our parents are like and things and so I wrote a book yeah. on uh, how to try to get to know the real God uh, better experiencing God outside the box. But yeah. loving God, my final word of encouragement to people is love love God. Uh, and don't confuse them with your dad and mom, <laughs> but love, love God. Try to figure out, you know, ask them, show me who you really are, you know, and, uh, uh, and then uh, love yourself and, uh, and, and use that and fill your love tank so that you can spill it out and share it with other people. And loving and being loved is where real success comes from. I agree. I agree with you, Paul. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this tonight. And uh, I think we've got many topics to come. You and I need to do a show one night on uh, on on relationship with on relationship with God, like what what that is and what it means. And we all go through phases. You know, I've had a kind of a, a stale feeling lately, not not towards him, but just reading my Bible doesn't quite feel the same and going to church doesn't quite feel the same. And I just, you know, that little bit of passion is lacking and that bothers me. Like it really bothers yeah, me when that happens. That, I'm, I'm sure you've yeah, had that too. Yep. Yeah. So it we should do a show. Down. Yeah. We should do a show about that one night. Cause I think everyone definitely experiences that throughout their, their faith walks. Yeah. 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 All righty. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in and uh, we'll look forward to, uh, speaking with you guys again, and you guys can listen on the next episode of Roundtable and Mental Health News Radio. 
Hi, this is Dr. Paul Meyer of the Meyer Clinics. We're reminded in Jeremiah 29 11 that God has good plans for each of us, plans to give us a future and a hope. When you're going through difficult times, it's important to remember that important truth. Our Christian counseling staff at the Meyer Clinics will also come alongside you with encouragement and biblically-based counseling. This message is sponsored by the Meyer Clinic Foundation, a nonprofit Christian counseling ministry. The number is 1-888-7-CLINIC, 1-888-7-CLINIC. good intentions i heat up and act on my emotions thanks so much for listening to mental health news radio our podcast can be found on itunes stitcher and hundreds of other podcast apps or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com if you have a question or would like to be a guest become a podcaster on our network or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.